Kim. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios. You eat a chicken sandwich? This is the Press Box. The best is their chicken minis, which are these little small rolls that they have butter all over them and like a chicken nugget inside of it, and they're delicious. I got to get out more, man. I have a slice of wheat toast. With Grainy and Bischoff. I got to get out more. On ESPN Las Vegas. I switched the wheat toast to the uh, the energy bar. Big upgrade? Yeah, I was going to say upgrade. lateral move. <laughs> lateral move, lateral move to the kind uh, cashew cherry with the dark chocolate. That kind of gets me through the drive over. <laughs> I, I mean, at least with the kind bar, you're finding little bits of the kind bar in your teeth yes, afterwards. It, so you get a little snack. <laughs> yeah. It's always a big, uh, big advantage. Did you guys see all flights were delayed? Yeah. Again? Like, apparently the FAA had some... System. Yeah. It sounds scary. Notice to air mission system uh, has just been down since, like, some point last night. And they finally started allowing planes to take off again, apparently, like, an hour ago. But I guess for, like, five, six, seven hours overnight and into the morning... All flights were grounded in the U.S. So this isn't just our favorite airline. This is not just Southwest. No, this is this is the FAA. <laughs> Some system failed, and they're like, well, we can't have anybody take off because I guess they can't. The FAA can't talk to flight crews is what I'm reading. But That's not good. Yeah, so can't take off then. But they're back. We're, we're back on board. He's so. a little nervous beating the first one up. <laughs> if I didn't know better, and like you're like, all right, you can take off now. It's like, who else is in the sky? Just, oh, no, it's just you. We're trying to see something. <laughs> <laughs> the first bite. Is Tom Brady the Raiders' next QB? Okay, I think with McDaniels and Ziggler, he is, as we say here, the number one priority. I don't think he's going to be the quarterback of the team next year. I think he's going to look at this team and surmise that it cannot challenge for Super Bowl. And at his age, I think he's going to go to the best team that he might think has the chance. So that, I think, is the important point of the entire Tom Brady conversation. This is not a situation where... The Raiders get to draft Tom Brady, and he just has to play for yeah. the team because they have to. If if he is going to leave Tampa Bay and not retire, he's a free agent, and he can go wherever he wants. And I don't think anybody is going to look at the Raiders and say, "Oh, they're close to contention. I can walk in over there and look at me. Uh, I'm now competing for a Super Bowl with the Raiders. They're quite a long ways away from that now." If you got a franchise-level quarterback, then maybe you are a lot closer. I don't know if Tom Brady's that anymore, right? Tom Brady was not very good this season. No, he wasn't very good this season. So if you get the 2022 Tom Brady on the Raiders, they're probably the same team. Like, there's probably not much difference in this year's team with Derek Carr versus Tom Brady. I think he's better than the guy they had. He is, but are they going from 6-11 to to 11-6? No, I don't think so. That's right. why I think he looks at it and knows that. So that's the interesting part here. And then if we have that as our main context, should he be the Raiders' top priority? Well, I don't know if he should be, but knowing the familiarity they have with him and how much they you know 
probably love him in terms of what he did for them in New England, I think he probably will be their priority. doesn't mean they should be the priority. I think he will be their top priority to try to get him in here. It all, it's so what it comes down to is something Vinny Bonsignore of the RJ wrote, where he wrote about Tom Brady's the top priority. But he wrote in that story, the first is maximizing the return on what amounts to a two-year window of core players. Devontae Adams, Max Crosby, Darren Waller, Chandler Jones, and Hunter Renfro, and almost assuredly Josh Jacobs. What did the Raiders have a two-year window of doing? Well, in their minds, probably they have a two-year window of winning the Super Bowl. Mm-hmm. I think in their minds. Right. I but, like, they, neither of us agree with no, that. Not, no, neither of us agree with that. So, I'm genuinely shocked by it. <laughs> so, it's just like, if they truly do have a two-year window to win the Super Bowl, then they should do everything they can to bring in Tom Brady, right? They shouldn't be drafting a quarterback because there's a whole lot of uncertainty in that. They shouldn't be going after Jimmy Garoppolo because that's basically Derek Carr again. Lateral move. Right? Like, you should be going after Tom Brady, but I, I don't think this team's anywhere close to that. And... I think they're going to be in a lot of trouble if they spend the next two years trying to add Tom Brady-like players because they think they have a two-year window. Mm-hmm. If they keep moving, you know, dead cap hits down the road, like what the Saints did at the end of Drew Brees' career, like you're going to run into a year or two where you're just awful and you have no hope whatsoever, like none at all. So that, I think, is a rough place to be. But... This is where we see in the NFL uh, coaching life cycles not matching up with what's best for the team. Because here's my question to you. If the Raiders are not a... They don't don't have to win it. But if the Raiders are not a legitimate contender after Josh McDaniel's third season, he's fired, right? I don't think he's fired if they're getting deep into the playoffs. Well, then they'd be a legitimate contender. I'm saying if they're not. They're maybe they make the playoffs, but they lose in the first round. If they if they're just a non playoff team or a wild card team that can't win a playoff game, he's fired, right? <laughs> Two more years, right? But they make the playoffs in his third year. Let's say they let's say they win let's eight say, games next year. Following they, year, they go nine and eight. They and get they the seventh seed and, and they, they lose. Get the seventh seed and they lose. I don't think he's fired, man. How would you I not fire that? I don't guy? think he's fired. I don't think he is. I think that I think the, that Mark Davis is in there for the long run. I mean, I mean the long run, like four or five years. I really do. Now, next year they go six and eleven, and then followed by six and eleven. That might be a different story. But you said in the third year they'd make the playoffs, and I think that he would see that as progress, and that he would stick with them. He just fired Rich Passaccia for doing that. Well, that was an interim. That I thought that count. was I thought that was different. He wanted his I think he wanted his own people in there and in terms of new people and a new fresh look. I mean, Bisacci was his guy that he named as an interim, but I agree with Jared on that. He was an interim. I think that was different than Josh McDaniels and Dave Ziegler. Would McDaniels survive if they rebuild? If he went to Mark Davis and said, "Listen, this Patrick Mahomes guy is really good." We weren't very close this year. We need to tear this down, and we need to try to be good in 2025. Would he survive two years of 
we're tearing it down. We're not trying to be very good right now because we're not close and we need two years to build this roster into a legitimate contender. Could we get the what the Bengals did whenever they went for a rebuild? They fired Marvin Lewis and then hired Marvin Lewis in order to be in charge <laughs> of the rebuild. They could fire Josh McDaniels. They go, you know, the best man for the job, Josh McDaniels. Because the the coach life cycle here, if the Raiders are truly bad for the next two years, McDaniels is fired. If they're a six-win team two years in a row after this, McDaniels is fired. So, like, McDaniels can't sit there and say, we're going to win six games. But it would be stupid as an organization to chase after this two-year window because you're not winning the Super Bowl in the next two years. You're, it's not going to happen unless you land. Like, if they traded up for Bryce Young and he's the next great quarterback, then maybe. But the odds of them being anywhere close to the Super Bowl in the next two years is zero. And so what's good for McDaniels is to try to win nine or ten games and sneak into the playoffs and convince Mark Davis that, oh, I can do this. But what's good for the franchise is to be bad for the next two years because your roster's not good enough to come anywhere close to the Kansas City Chiefs or the other good teams in the AFC. And so that's where you run into the coach needs to win as many games as possible, even if it's the definition of mediocre. But what's good for the organization is not being mediocre. What's good for the organization is either, hey, you're a contender, or hey, you're picking in the top five of the draft. I think they have a better chance, especially if they get Tom Brady, of convincing him they can be a contender. I think if they get Tom Brady... Well, they were convinced this last year. They didn't even get Tom Brady. (laughs) I I think if they get Tom Brady, they can convince him. Whether that's true or not, and whether that plays out or not, who knows. But I think if they get Brady, they'll convince him they're a contender. And like you said, they go back-to-back 6-11s again then I think everybody's in trouble. The problem with the Raiders roster, though, is they they actually have some top-end talent at important positions, right? Like rush end. Outside of quarterback, defensive end, wide receiver, offensive tackle are three of the other most important positions. And they've got Devontae Adams, Max Crosby, and Colton Miller. Now, the rest of the defensive line isn't very good. The rest of the offensive line isn't very good. Wide receivers are fine. Uh, But they don't have any cornerbacks, which is the other important position. The problem, though, is they have sort of the high-end talent. They don't have any of, like, the secondary Mm -hmm. talent. They don't have, like, the second tier of, like, oh, that guy's pretty good. You need, like, what, 12 of those, and they have maybe two? It's like, ah, Deron Harmon and Dylan Parham and Denzel Perryman. Right. It's like there's, like, four or five of those guys when you need, like, 12 or 13. They just have to hit on so many free agents or draft picks this offseason it makes it hard. But I will say one thing on Tom Brady, because we kind of saw it when he first went to Tampa Bay. Do you believe, let's say the Raiders signed Tom Brady, would they be able to um, do better in free agency than they have the last five plus mm. years? Because, hey, Tom Brady's here and people will want to play with him. I mean, I think there's something to that. He'd be 45, 46. I'm not sure that it, when he was 35, you'd have more guys say, "Hey, he's winning Super Bowls, and we're going to we're going to go and then win the Super Bowl there right away." I think there might be something to it offensively. I don't know if there's anything to it defensively, and defensively is where they really right. are struggling. I right. mean, that's where they really need to rebuild. It's just a uh, we're going to hear Tom Brady and the Raiders nonstop, and it just until it happens or it doesn't. I just don't think it makes a whole lot of sense 
for the Raiders as an organization or for Tom Brady. The only person mm. it makes sense for is Josh McDaniels to win nine games instead of six. I, I think it makes sense for Tom Brady. No income tax, and we have day clubs. And he's a guy, a divorced guy in his 40s. Do they not have that in Florida? They don't have income tax. But do they have day clubs? I'm guessing, day yes. <laughs> I'm on it. Coming up next. Doing it from the work computer. UNLV takes on Boise State tonight. Rebels not moving. Throws it back to Harkless with 10 on the clock. It'll work on Allen. Harkless down the left side. Harkless underneath to Mawoka. Mawoka oh. gets fouled by Dent. David went up for the dunk, and Dent had to foul him. Ah. David back to the line to shoot two. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. UNLV is back tonight. They take on Boise State. 8 o'clock start. You can hear it right here on ESPN Las Vegas. You can watch it on CBS Sports Network. Uh, Some Boise State numbers for you. 49th in Ken Palm. 35th in the net. They're 2-1 in Mountain West play. Their losses to Nevada. And they have wins over San Jose State. And they their blowout win over Utah State. Um, yeah. Eight o'clock tip. Looks like it, I think it's going to be a close game. You? I'd expect it to be. So here's the interesting part. Boise State on the year has the 14th best defense by Ken Palm's defensive efficiency rankings. And no one can shoot against Boise State. Uh Their opponents are shooting 29% from three, and they are one of the top 50 teams in the country in forcing mid-range jumpers. And they're the fifth best defensive rebounding team in college basketball. So you have a really good Boise State defense. Boise State's offense, 137th in Ken Palm efficiency rankings. So you have two teams that are much, much better defensively than they are offensively. I think it'll be a close game because I don't think either team's going to be able to score very much tonight will be the bigger issue. So I'm curious to see how does UNLV look in a low scoring defensive battle so far this year, when they played top 50 Ken Palm defenses, they're five and one. The only one they lost to was San Diego state. However, when they play top 20 Ken Palm defenses, which is what Boise state is, they're one and one. Their one win was over Dayton earlier in the year and they lost to San Diego state. So I'm curious to see EJ Harkless, Keyshawn Gilbert. Can those two be efficient? Because when they played San Diego state, Harkless did get up to 18 points, but he took 19 shots to get there and he scored like 10 in the last two minutes when the game was over. And Gilbert had one point on O of four shooting. Can those two have anything close to a a average efficient game, right? They don't have to be incredible because Boise state's probably not going to score a lot. But can they get Harkless and Gilbert to have just sort of average efficiency? If they can, you know, he probably wins this game. Ken Palm's got it as a one-point game. One-point win for UNLV. It's basic, basically a toss-up. Right. And UNLV wins it there. I think this game comes down to two things. Can UNLV hit some threes? Right. UNLV's not a good three-point shooting team. Boise State's been good defending the three this year. This isn't they don't need to go like 15 of 30. No. But can they go, you know, can they shoot what, 9 30, of 25? 33%, right. 35%. Can, can they shoot somewhere around the national average of 35%? Can they knock down some threes? If this is a game where UNLV is like 2, two of 14, of it's going to be trouble. tough. The other part is can UNLV get to the free throw line? 
because this has been a key for UNLV in pretty much the entire season. Their their percentage of points at the free throw line, they're 66th in the country in terms of percentage of points that come at the free throw line. So that's probably the best thing about their offense is they get to the line a lot. Boise State's defense is kind of average in the foul department. They, they're not great. They're not terrible in terms of how often they send their opponent to the line. Can Harkless and Gilbert, it's usually those two, can Harkless and Gilbert get to the line a lot in this game? If they can, I think those are sort of the two aspects where UNLV can win this game. And then the other one is the turnovers UNLV generates. I think one thing that we don't actually have um, stats on, UNLV is going to force a lot of turnovers in just about every game they play. UNLV needs to force live ball turnovers. Like if they force 20 turnovers in this game, they need like 13 of those to be live ball turnovers that lead to some sort of transition fast basket. Because go back to the New Mexico game. UNLV doesn't play particularly well in the first half. They're losing going into halftime. And they come out in the second half and they go on a 9-0 run to take the lead. Four of those nine points were directly off of steals that led to fast break. And, right. and it wasn't even two-on-one. It was two-on-zero right. fast breaks. And they got four free points because they forced live ball turnovers. Can they force live balls? If they force 20 turnovers and... You know, 14 of them are just, oh, deflected out of bounds, and now they have to set up in the half court. I don't think they're scoring a whole lot on those possessions. And Boise doesn't turn it over much. Right. But if they can get some steals that lead to actual fast breaks, that's how they score against a good defense. So can they force some live ball turnovers? If they do so, I think that also sort of jumps their offensive efficiency up against what is a really, really good defensive team. Yeah, I think... uh they better hope that it's not the Boise who blew out Utah State. I still don't know how that happened. I don't know how that happened. I don't know how that I don't know how that happened. Because it wasn't even a, a it wasn't just a win. It was eighty two to fifty nine. Like a complete blowout in that game. By the way, did you see the quote from Max Rice's Rice? kid? Yeah. So Max Rice, after they beat Boise State, eighty two to fifty nine, said the only thing I'm worried about is that we beat them by 20 and it might not be a quad one win <laughs> exactly, anymore. Exactly. It might be, he said it might be a quad two win. <laughs> the Utah State. I love that kids are that dialed in to quad one and quad two wins and what it might mean for a resume. <laughs> that Utah State could have fallen so far after that that it wasn't. So here's the thing Utah State still 24th, which means it's still a quad one win for Boise right. State. Now they fall two more spots, it's no longer a quad one win. But still a quad one win for Boise State for right now. But it's a, so in that game, uh, Utah State, and to go back to the free throw point, Utah State got to the free throw line just 14 times in that game, which is not a terribly small number. But Utah State made six free throws. Ugh. Six of 14, which is really bad. And that's going to be where, you know, UNLV has to win games is by getting to the free throw line a lot. And maybe they can do that against Boise State, but it might be a bit of an issue. How important do you think this game is? I think it's really important. They're one and two. Uh, it's getting away from a little bit at the top, even though it's still early. And I think it's important to come back after the New Mexico win and win a game like this. So, you know, again, people don't look back at that New Mexico win and say, well, you know, was that a fluke? Did you steal one there? And now you have to come home and play Boise. I think these two are really important. They play Boise tonight. They play Colorado State on Saturday. If they can get these, uh, as we said yesterday, they'd be 3-2 and two going to Utah State, uh, which is not easy to win at despite what happened at Boise that we just talked about. 
I think this is a big. I think this is a big game for them. I would view the next three as a combination. Can they go two and one in the next three? Right. If they can, and obviously you want the Utah State win because that's a quad one win for sure because it's on the road. But Boise State, Colorado State, Utah State. Can you go two and one in this stretch? Colorado State seems like you kind of have to win that one. They're one of the bottom three or four teams in the conference, and you're at home for that one. So can you win Boise State or Utah? If they lose this one but then win the next two, that that's perfectly fine from here on out because the uh, only like easy part of the schedule is what's coming up. After that Utah State game, they f- play Fresno State, they play Wyoming, they play Nevada, they play Colorado State, they play Fresno State, they play Wyoming, right? So you play outside of Air Force – the lower teams of the Mountain West plus Nevada is thrown in there in the middle. So there's a there's a five six game stretch after this where they'll be actually Ken Palm has them favored in all six. So they're going to have after these next three they're going to have a really good chance to go five and one in a six game stretch and boost that conference record up. So can they win two of the next three? I think to me is sort of the key for UNLV. Colorado State's an automatic win, and if not, there's something wrong. They've Should lost. Be. Lost to, to San Jose State at home, and last night they lost the Air Force at home. <laughs> they did beat uh, Fresno State, though. Um, yeah, that, so far it has not been very good for Colorado State this year. Um, and I'll give you this fun stat on Colorado State. Worst offensive rebounding team in the entire country. Wow. That's a lot of teams below them. That is. Uh, 363. How many, times, how many teams is that below them? 362 <laughs> are better. 360. They are the worst in the country. Yep. At offensive rebounding. So UNLV's had a problem with that. If they play I was that game say, against... That, that might be the one team where UNLV really looks good on the defensive rebounding. If UNLV plays Colorado State and we're like, they have 17 offensive rebounds, we might need to say, hold on, what the hell is going, going on here? On. Kevin, what, are you guys okay? You need to take a break for a little bit here? So UNLV-Boise State tonight. Um, the fun part about this is that either team that wins tonight, Boise State or UNLV... They will look at it as that's a good win for our NCAA tournament resume. Sure. So it's a fun game yes. when both teams, whoever wins, gets to walk away and say, yeah, put that that'll on our help resume. Us. That'll that, help us on the resume. That could help us. So fun game tonight. And th- these are the types of games, especially when we get later in the year, because these two teams play again uh, February 19th. In Boise. When we get later in the year, we are absolutely could be looking at this games as, hey, that's a play out of the NCAA tournament right. game. Like when they play again in February, there's a really good chance that it's like both teams are, oh, they're the first four out and the loser is really in some trouble, which will be a lot of fun. And you can kind of apply that logic, even though it's early to these types of games as well. All right. Coming up next here on ESPN Las Vegas, John Von Tobel joins the show. I get the wacky, funny. I'm Jared stick. <laughs> Okay? When I tell you I'll do a hit, I'll do a hit. Don't text me four times while I'm at work doing your little jokey bit. I'll text you back. I don't need my phone going off 20 times because you're laughing and making jokes and going, ha, 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 this is hilarious. It's not. Live from the Finley Toyota ESPN Las Vegas studios, this is The Press Box with Grady and Bischoff. Joining us now is John Von Tobel. You can hear him on Cofield and Company in the afternoons. Also... Check out his work on Twitter. If you want to bet on the NBA, make sure you follow at me, JVT. Uh, good morning, John. How many hey, times does Jared text you on a regular basis? Uh, I don't think it's on a regular basis. Uh, the complaint was actually when he books me for guest spots, which I'm assuming that's why you, Tyler, booked <laughs> me for this certain spot as opposed to Jared. Uh, also, 
that day, he also just happened to, you know, text me over and over again while I was on the air. So during my regular job, while I'm on the desk, I hear not really uh, the best thing for me when I'm trying to, you know, focus on my job. Yeah. I never get more than one text message from Jared at a time. That sounds so unusual, so unlike him. Oh, was I supposed to respond to that? <laughs> no, you're fine. You're fine. All right, uh, John, before we get into some NBA here, I am uh, curious. Do you want the Colts to dr- trade up and draft a quarterback? Of course. I, like, I think that is the like very obvious choice for Indianapolis, I mean, especially because they fell down to four, right? Like, there's a really clear and obvious path that you can get up to number one and get the pick of the litter, whether it's Bryce Young or C.J. Stroud. Now, they'll probably have either C.J. Stroud or Will Levis available to them, right, at number four. But I think you want Bryce Young, and I think because it's the shortest move up, that's the thing that you should do. You have needed a quarterback since Andrew Luck has left. Enough with the revolving door. Go and get the best prospect that's currently available, and that would be Bryce Young. So, yes, absolutely, I would want them to do that. But... If you're going to tell me I have a choice between them doing that or not hiring Jeff Saturday, which seems to be a very realistic <laughs> probability, uh, I would choose. Please do not draft. Do please do not hire Jeff Saturday. So, so you'll take uh, Derek Carr and real NFL head coach rather than Jeff Saturday and Bryce Young. Unfortunately, if that's what the, if that's what it has to be, then that's what it has to be. So yes, I would uh, I would very much choose that. Oh, do you really do you, do you think they could go Jeff Saturday? Uh, Ed, it was incredible. Jim Trotter, I, it was one of the best reports I think I've seen on NFL Network, right? Because it's you know a mouthpiece essentially for the league. Jim Trotter went on there yesterday, and I retweeted the clip. You can go watch it. He 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 almost went it not scorched earth, but like you could tell in his tone that he was almost laughing at the Colts. He he told the NFL Network guys, Siciliano and others, that this offseason for Chris Ballard is about him convincing Jim Mercy not to hire Jeff Saturday. <laughs> Like that he is the guy who he considers the leader in the clubhouse for that job because Saturday wants him. Saturday, excuse me, Ursay wants him. He's been meddling all season long. He's a reason, I don't know if you guys remember, but in the middle of the season before they fired Frank Reich, they fired their offensive coordinator. Like Frank Reich's not the guy who's been pulling the trigger on the offense the entire time. He gets antsy and he fires Reich. He goes and gets Saturday because, you know, he doesn't have any coaching experience. Like Ursay's been all over this thing, and apparently Ballard, uh, by one report, was begging him not to hire Saturday in the middle of the season, and he still did it. So, yes, by like all accounts, Saturday is the leader for this job. All right. In the NBA, uh, Steph Curry returned last night. Warriors still ended up losing to the depleted Phoenix Suns. Steph Curry's back. Uh, the Warriors are right around a six or seven spot in the West. How, how good is this team going to be once the playoffs actually get here? Are we talking about a title contender, or are they just middle ad- average uh, Western Conference team? I mean, I think they're, as a team, average, but because they have Steph Curry, they're a title contender, right? Like, we saw last year, Curry was incredible, guys. Like, Curry is still incredible. By the way, he looks so much cooler with, like, the, I don't know if you guys watched him play yesterday. He had, like, the one arm, like, yeah. full arm sleeve. Yeah. Looked super cool. Um, but, like, when you're looking at it from, like, a standpoint of how do you win in the NBA, you have a player like Steph Curry on your team, and if everybody else just plays an average level of basketball, you can do it. And I think they, they could still do it if Curry's going to be Curry. Like, I'm tired of kind of discounting him, right? Like, if you look at the run that they went on last year, there were some performances here and there, but the constant was Steph Curry playing like Steph Curry. And if he's going to be out there, then they're absolutely going to have a shot. They do have to tweak some things and fix some things. Uh, Their defense has been nowhere near the level that we usually expect it to be for a Golden State Warriors type of team. Uh, And their bench really isn't that great, but their bench hasn't been fully healthy. They think they're still going to be pretty good. Now, 
it's not great when you lose to a Phoenix Suns team that I think started Dwayne Washington, Torrey Craig, Mikhail Bridges, Dario Saric, and Bismack Biyombo. That's like an incredible starting lineup to get a win uh, with if you're Phoenix. But I think at the end of the day, if he's going to be out there and they're going to get like a 4-5 seed and even a 4, like if they get home court because they're pretty good at home, I don't think I'm going to count them out, especially in a West that is very wide open. Yeah, I was going to ask you that. Uh, Denver kind of surged to the top, but is it more likely that they're contenders because who's above them? Denver? No, I think Denver's legitimately good. Like, So one of the things that we've been waiting for, Ed, and I wrote about this before the season started, you know, you go back to the year that Jamal Murray tore his ACL, like, I, I thought Denver was going to win the finals that year. Like, Denver was incredible. Those lineups were absolutely tremendous with him, Jamal Murray, uh, and Aaron Gordon on the floor together. And this team is arguably better than that team because they have better depth, right? They have a Contavious Caldwell Pope. They have Bruce Brown. Uh, they have a Christian Brown. I always want to say Braun. Uh, a young kid who's actually performed pretty well on the bench. They have a good, legitimate bench scorer who's, you know, kind of up and down as bench scorers are in Bones Highland, but still a really good piece there. Like, this team is better than the one that I'm speaking of a couple of years back, and I thought that team was going to win the NBA Finals. So I think, no, they, like, they're a legitimate contender. They deserve to be where they're at from a record standpoint, from an output standpoint. And again, going back to the simple handicapping aspect of the NBA, when you have a player like Nikola Jokic, you're going to have a really good shot. Now, I think defensively, there's some questions. I think they're still right now in non-garbage time defensive efficiency, 27th or 28th. Um, that will hurt you in certain matchups, obviously. But they can outscore, I think, pretty much everybody in the NBA, and that goes a really long way. But I, I really like that team. I wouldn't take anything away from them. Who will be the worst player that scores 50 this year? <laughs> I mean, just throw them in a hat and pick one. It's crazy. <laughs> like, I, 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 don't, I don't even know what to say about it anymore, right? Because, like, these guys, like, it'll probably be like some random bench scorer, right? Like, I think you're probably looking at that. Um, it's nuts. And, yes, it's part of the way the game is played. These games are faster defenses are having a lot more trouble defending. It's not for anybody out there who's shouting at their radio right now and shaking their fists like, they don't play defense anymore. It's not it. Uh, you, you know, guys are shooting from farther and farther away on the floor. It's opening up the floor even more for guys to get to the rim. It's just harder to play defense. And these guys are just playing at such an incredible level. I don't know specifically who the worst player would be, but just think of them, and they'll probably be pretty close <laughs> to doing it. It's been pretty incredible to watch. Will we get uh, the Nets ever at full health? He goes down again. Uh, they have yeah. been playing well. Uh, we talked about this yesterday that you want to see them at full strength for a long time, and yet something always seems to happen. Yeah, I, but I think we kind of saw it, right? Like You mentioned yeah. they were playing well. They, they were fully healthy before Kevin Durant went down. And by all accounts, for those who remember last year, you know he had a similar injury, but it kept him out for six weeks. Uh, it does not seem that that's the case. Every single report has said that this is nowhere near the same degree of MCL sprain, so that's obviously a good sign. Um, so I, I'm, I'm thinking this, this, this probably might be kind of the year for them uh, in terms of at least the fully availability, and full availability, I should say, and healthy. You know, the problem is do you expect them to be normal for the rest of the season, right? Like, or is something going to happen off the court or on Twitter or something that's going to start to, like, implode this team from the inside? But I think it won't, and I think the reason why is Jacques Vaughn. Jacques Vaughn's been great. He's been absolutely incredible as head coach. He has pushed all the right buttons. Since Steve Nash has been fired, guys, they're a top-five defense. And a lot of that has to do with Jacques Vaughn and the play of guys like Ben Simmons, Royce O'Neal, and Nick Claxton. But I think they're going to be fine if Durant comes back because he's got an MVP to fight for. So I think they would probably bring him back a little bit earlier. I think that they're going to be perfectly fine. And I think that they're a legitimate contender. Uh, I'm curious on one team in the East, one team in the West, surprising teams that are in a playoff picture right now, Pacers and Kings. Do either one of them stay in the top six in their conference? 
Oh, I don't think about top six. I think top ten and they're playing teams, but I like top six in terms of just like solidifying themselves as getting to avoid the play-in. Uh, I think the Pacers obviously have the higher probability of falling into the play-in, just given you know what the team, what we thought they were going to be before the season started, and what they really are. They're a pretty poor defensive team with a lower ceiling, I would think, offensively than the Sacramento Kings uh, currently have. By the way, uh, the Pacers can surpass their win total already. They can be the first team to go uh, to go over their win total or clinch a decision on their win total with their next victory. That's how low their win total was. Um, but I think for Sacramento, it's, it's Tyler, there's a higher probability that they lock in a six-seed, mainly because of the conference and how well they're playing. But I think defensively, they'll start to get held back a little bit. And there's going to be some teams that start to creep up and solidify their positions in the top six, right? You know, teams like the Clippers, potentially, I haven't looked. I think the Mavericks are still in the top six. But those teams that are kind of floating in that nexus of seven through ten, there's a couple that I think will rise up and push them out and force them to be a play-in team. Did we know Donovan Mitchell was this good? I think so. I mean, from a scoring perspective, we knew, right? I mean, the 71 points is obviously insane. Um, but I think when you're looking at him like as a pure scorer, Ed, I, I think we kind of understood. The question has always been for Donovan Mitchell, and I think it's my question too, are you going to play at least an average level of defense that is not going to make you an absolute sieve and black hole on that end of the floor when you play playoff games? Like one of the things that really irritated me about the discourse around those Utah Jazz teams was the mouth breathers who would say it was Rudy Gobert's fault that they were losing some of those games, when if you watched it, it was Rudy Gobert trying to put out fires all over the floor because guys like Donovan Mitchell were just letting their dudes blow by them. Uh, It was incredible to watch him on that end of the floor. And he's actually putting in some effort on that end of the floor this year. So if that's going to change, then I think he can be uh, even better. But I I think from an offensive standpoint, it was never surprising. You know, again, he does it last night against his old team. I mentioned the 71 against Chicago and that comeback victory. I don't think it's surprising he's capable of this, but if he can actually start to, you know, get his butt in the gear here on defense, I think the perception of who he is as a player is going to start to rise, and he's become more of a, a legitimate candidate for an award like an MVP down the stretch. I'm going with Laurie Markkinen as the worst player to put up 50 this year. See, he's pretty good, though. That's the problem. I think Laurie Markkinen is actually a really good player. He just, look, in Chicago, I don't want to say he didn't get a fair shake because by all accounts, they did everything they possibly could to build around him. You know, some guys are kind of late bloomers, but he was a high draft pick. He's a pretty good player. I mean, I guess maybe, theoretically, he might be the worst player to drop 50, just give, you know, given the competition, but I'm sure there will be a worse guy coming around. He is John Von Tobel. Again, follow him on Twitter at MeJVT. You can hear him on Cofield & Company also on VSIN. John, as always, we appreciate Thanks, it. Thanks, John. Good to talk to you guys. Thank you. See you. So there's John Von Tobel. Uh, Jared, you should have texted him 37 times while we were talking to him. Oh, no, like he he made a valid point. Like, yeah, yeah. But you I, should I like, have texted I like him thirty seven straight times while we talked to him. Yeah, just I, to see if he would say anything while talking to us. I may or may not have been working on some actual work stuff. <laughs> what could be more important than annoying our guests? Coming up next, the A's uh, have a ballpark location or are running out of ballpark locations. Not really sure. Coming up next on ESPN Las Vegas. Swing and a high fly ball. Right field coming over, getting under it, and making the catch for the third and final out to put the ball game away. The Marlins have done the job. They win this one 2-1. to one. We're back to the press box with Grady and Bischoff. So I'm not sure if this is good news or bad news on the A's potentially moving to Las Vegas, but Mick Akers had a story yesterday about the Oakland A's no longer being in contact 
with the owner of the Las Vegas Festival Ground site. And Mick Akers in the past had reported that the A's were down to two possible locations if they moved to Las Vegas to build their ballpark, the Festival Grounds and the Tropicana site. And if they're not in contact with the Festival Grounds, that would, you know, by default mean that they are only looking at the Tropicana site. And I didn't know if I should read that story as, hey, this means the A's have essentially picked out a location for a ballpark in Vegas, and that's one step closer. Or if it's, uh, hey, the A's are losing leverage because they're not talking to one of the locations and they don't actually have a deal done for the Tropicana site. And it means they're not coming because they're not actively pursuing multiple sites anymore. I mean, I guess it depends on how close they are with Tropicana. If they're deep into discussions and they think they're close or they have some kind of deal that nobody knows about, it doesn't really matter about the Phil Ruffin site. Right. And I don't know if it's that or if it's just they kind of stop paying attention over here because they think they're going to get a deal done in Oakland. And Mm -hmm. if they get a deal done in Oakland, they're not coming to Vegas and it doesn't matter what sites they want to put a ballpark in. They're not coming here. So I didn't know, I didn't know how to read that story or frame that story because I didn't know if that's good news about the A's coming or bad news about the A's coming. Now, what is uh, bad news for Oakland? So the A's want to build this ballpark that, at the Howard Terminal site in Oakland, and that's their plan to stay. They're asking for a bunch of money. Uh, the city of Oakland has like, hey, we're going to get money from like three or four different places. One of those places was requesting a grant, and they requested as much as $180 million. The Department of Transportation in California was in charge of granting this money, and they did not give the city of Oakland any of that money. Now, I've read a couple of things from media members in the Bay Area that are reporting on this. It's certainly not a good thing for Oakland because their plan was to use some of that money to cover infrastructure costs. infrastructure costs, cost, which has been one of the main kind of, not culprits here, but one of the main sticking points are these infrastructure costs right. up there. What do your roads need to look like when you plop right. down a baseball park where there hasn't been a building that's going to draw that many people in? Um, granted, it's the A's, so maybe it wouldn't draw that many people in. Uh, but there have been some media members that said this is certainly not some sort of... Uh, nail in the coffin for Oakland's plan because a, they requested $180 million, but they weren't expecting to get all of that, right? They were hoping to get more than zero, but apparently they weren't expecting to get 180 million. And two, that it's very, did I go a and two? Yeah. Thanks, a, B, B. Uh, it's they, they, you can find other ways, right? In, in the grand scheme of things, $180 million. When you're talking about what, what's the cost of this? Twelve billion is that the for total? the entire project? The, yeah, there's more the than just a ballpark. Project, yeah. Twelve billion, one hundred eighty million dollars shouldn't sink Curtail the entire right. project. Exactly. Like it's a problem, but they, it's not like they lost out on one point eight billion. They lost out on one hundred eighty million in a twelve billion dollar project. So that's not good news for Oakland, but it probably shouldn't be the end of the road for the A's staying in Oakland. Is it interesting to you that we haven't heard from Dave Cobble in a long time? Yeah. Because we heard from him every week yeah. for a couple of years. And, you know, before Southwest had its problems, I think he was on Southwest <laughs> Airlines of a lot. A lot why we haven't down. heard from him? He couldn't get here? <laughs> I don't know. Do the A's have their own plane? <laughs> they don't let Dave Cobb They don't like to it. sign free agents. So maybe they, I don't know if they have a plane. They did. What Wasn't it the A's? Uh, 
their their all star had to catch a ride with was it the yeah. Braves or something yeah. like that to come to the all star game because they weren't going to fly him right they were going to fly him commercial or something like that. Um, Dave Cavill, because the interesting part, Mick Aker's story. When I saw the headline, my first thought was, oh, Dave Cavill is saying, hey, we've got a location picked out. But in Mick Aker's story in the RJ, it's actually Dave Cobble didn't respond for comment about this, which I thought was interesting because he's always ready to comment. He's always ready to talk. Right. Ah, how great Las Vegas is going to be. So I almost, to go back to my original question, maybe it's a bad thing for Las Vegas and getting the A's because if if... If that the, they're only down to one site? Well, it, because if it was a positive thing, I feel like Dave Cobble would be talking about it. If it was, hey, Tropicana location, we're ready to go, I feel like Dave Cobble would be out here saying, pumping it up. I mean, like, it's a perfect spot for Oakland ba- or for athletics baseball in Las Vegas. Like, for him to not say anything Putting when more he's been... more inherent pressure on Oakland. Yeah, he's been a cheerleader for Las Vegas for right. two years now. I feel like him haven't not heard from him in a while, anything. actually. Yeah, so it's probably not a good thing. Now, granted... Next week, he'll probably be here and be like, ah, I'm at a Golden Knights game again. Right. Like, look how great it is. So, I don't know. Also, news this morning in baseball. Uh, Carlos Correa passed his physical with the Twins. Oh, sure. Why wouldn't he? Played for him last year. Yeah. So, the deal, according to Jeff Passan, is finalized. He will be a Minnesota twin. Six for 200? Six years, 200 million, with the option for that to turn into 10 years and 270, uh, depending on how he plays and how his health is. Uh, over the course of the next six Man, years. Carlos Cray went back to the Minnesota Twins. They came out of nowhere last offseason to Man. give him the one year. What did he get? $35 million. And then Giants deal falls through. Mets deal falls through. And the Twins are just sitting there. Well, hey, Carlos. Yeah, come on back. Yeah, we'll give you six for 200 I do wonder. If, so Cray signed a 13-year deal with the Giant. Well, I guess he never signed it. Agreed to one and then 12 years with the Mets. If we went all the way back to the start of free agency and everybody knew Correa would take a six-year deal, how many more teams would have been? How many more teams would have jumped in for that? Would have been a lot. Yeah.